The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the third chapter, reading from verse 5 to verse 9. From verse 5 to verse 9, in the third chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? I come back again to this great incident in the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of its Supreme importance. The whole business of this gospel and of the preaching of this gospel is to bring us all face to face with the great and the eternal need of our soul. That is why a service like this in the name of Christ is essentially different from any other kind of meeting in the world. Other meetings may add to our knowledge and information. They may give us joy and pleasure. But the thing that makes this quite unique is this, that here we are dealing with something which is not only going to affect us and be of value to us while we are in this world of time, but it is the thing that will be of supreme importance to us at the moment of our death. It is the thing that determines our eternal destiny. That is what Christianity is about. First and foremost, it is concerned about individual men and women in their relationship to God. Of course, it doesn't stop at that. But it says that until that is put right, that nothing else can be put right. And that is why, according to the Bible, it is so foolish and so futile to be attempting to deal with the larger problems, the mean the wider problems, before we have dealt with this. I'm never tired of repeating this because it's so much misunderstood. This gospel is first and foremost personal because society, after all, is made up of persons. There is no such thing as abstract society. The world is as it is because the people in it are as they are. And it's no use talking about trying to do something to the world unless something has happened to individuals. Now that's the primary approach of the Bible everywhere. So its first message is this message to the individual. And after all, this is obviously the most important thing for all of us. For as we come into this world one by one, we'll go out of it one by one. 
And we have this individuality. We have this identity. I am myself, you are somebody else. And each one of us is responsible for this particular personality that God has given us. We, whether we like it or not, we are individuals. The heart knoweth its own sorrow. So before you begin to think of the state or any wider applications of Christianity, you must of necessity start with the individual. It is kindness to do that for his sake. It is ultimately the best way, the only real way of dealing with the social problem. Well, now then, I say I come back to it for that great reason. Because what our Lord says is this. It is his teaching everywhere. That the one thing that matters to every one of us is, do we or do we not belong to the kingdom of God? That's the thing that determines our eternal destiny. We are all in one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God or the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of the devil, if you like. And what decides our eternal destiny and fate is, which of the kingdoms we belong to? And the teaching is that if we do not belong to the kingdom of God, well, then we will spend our eternity apart from God, and that is misery and wretchedness and unhappiness without end. So the vital thing, the greatest thing of all is to know whether we belong to the kingdom of God, to make certain of it. And here, you see, our Lord is dealing with that great theme, with this man Nicodemus, this great Pharisee, this teacher of Israel. And it is a story, obviously, therefore, that is full of the greatest instruction. And our Lord really brings it all down to this. He just puts it at the very outset to Nicodemus by saying, Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He repeats it. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now then, he means by that, as we've seen, that to become a Christian is a very great thing. It's a profound thing. It isn't just a little change, a little improvement here and there. It is the profoundest change that one can ever know or ever experience. Why is such a change necessary? Why does he use this kind of terminology? Why is the difference between not being a Christian and being a Christian comparable to having a kind of birth once more, being born again? Well, we looked last night at last Sunday night at the first answer he gives to that question. He says this is essential because of the character of the kingdom of God, because of its nature, and conversely, because of our character in sin. And the moment we realize something about what things are like in the kingdom of God and then look at ourselves, well, we realize at once that there's something hopelessly wrong with us. God is the king of that realm. And he is to be glorified. And none of us have done that. We've sinned against him. Therefore, before I can even see that kingdom, leave alone enter it, I've got to face this question of my rebellion against God, my refusal to live to God's glory, the fact that I'm guilty in the sight of God. Something's got to be done about that. I need, as our Lord puts it, to be born of water. 
I've got to see my sin. I've got to acknowledge my sin and confess it. And something's got to be done about it. And thank God, as we saw last Sunday evening, something has been done about it. This very person who was talking to Nicodemus in that interview that night after dark had come into this world specifically in order to do that. And that is why, you see, he pulls up Nicodemus so sharply. Nicodemus takes this superficial view of the kingdom and says, now what have I got to do just to get inside Nicodemus? He says, don't you realize, men, that before you can enter that kingdom, I've got to die for you? We must be born of water. We must repent and acknowledge and confess our sin and realize that nothing but the death of Christ for us can possibly save us. That's the first thing. And it is absolutely essential. But it isn't the only thing. It must always come first. Water, be born of water, and then he goes on to this second thing. It is equally essential that we should be born of the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? Well, here, my friends, we are face to face with what I would call central New Testament teaching. There is nothing which is more important than this. This teaching which the New Testament puts to us in such a variety of forms, with such a, a variety of terminology, if you like. Here he talks about being born of the Spirit, or born from above, being born again. Elsewhere, it's referred to as regeneration. Same thing, being generated again. Sometimes it's uh, called a, a new creation. At other times, it is put in this form. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, says, we are his workmanship. The whole idea being that God has to make us anew, to create us afresh, a new creature. A new creation. Now, obviously, when the New Testament uses terms like that, it is clear that this is a very important matter. And it is quite clear that the thing that is being described is something, again, I say, which is very profound. You don't talk about a birth or a creation, lightly or glibly. It suggests something radical, something which really is a new start and a new beginning. And that is precisely what our Lord was here at such pains to say to this great man, great natural man, Nicodemus, one of the rulers and the teachers of Israel. Very well, what does he tell him about it? Here we are going to look at something I say this evening which is absolutely vital and essential to an entry into the kingdom of God. And that is the thing that determines our eternal destiny. Unless we are born again, we cannot enter into that kingdom. We don't even see it. Surely there is nothing, therefore, that is of greater importance for us than to understand exactly what this teaching says. Let me put it to you, therefore, like this. This is something that always comes as a surprise to the natural men. 
Indeed, we can go further and say that men, almost invariably when they first hear this doctrine, dislike it and resent it. We get an element of that in the case of this man Nicodemus. You notice how he questions our Lord and pulls him up and expresses his difficulties. He marvels at it, and our Lord has to say to him, Marvel, not that I said unto thee. But men always do marvel at this. They say, this is strange. This is a peculiar doctrine, isn't it? This is something very odd. They say, that's not my conception of Christianity at all. I thought that Christianity meant that you lived a good life and didn't do any harm, or that you were born in a country or christened when you were a child, and various things like, I thought that that was... What's all this about being born again, being made and created anew? What is this? What is this thing? How can these things be? Now, why is it you think that we react like that by nature? It seems to me that the answer is perfectly clear. One thing about this doctrine that always surprises us and causes us to marvel and perhaps to feel a tinge of annoyance is that it's something we cannot understand. I'm going to deal with that in a moment. But we don't like something that we can't understand. We are all sufferers from a pride of intellect. We think we can understand things. And we never like to be told something which at once suggests to us something that we cannot understand. So that tends to cause this sense of marvel and of irritation. But I think the main reason is this one. That man feels that this doctrine of the rebirth or of regeneration is an insult to him. And he feels, of course, that it's an insult to him because he is not slow to see the implication of the doctrine. When our Lord comes and says, you must be born again, the implication is this, that as you are, you are absolutely hopeless and helpless. You see, if he had come and said, all right, you've done very well, you're a master of Israel and you've been interested in me and in my miracles and you've come to seek the interview and to ask questions, very good. Now, all you've got to do is just to go a little bit further, just to make a little more application, just to give up certain things in your life and do others. And of course, at once Nicodemus would have liked it. He was going to do something. But you see, our Lord doesn't say that. He says, you must be born again. Now, there's only one implication to that statement. It's this. And let me make it perfectly plain and clear. As we are by nature, we rarely can do nothing at all. We cannot be improved. We are too bad for that. We must be born again. We must be created anew. God must do this original work of creation before we can enter into that kingdom. That is the teaching. So you see, it's not a question of something that lies within our capacity. A man as he is cannot believe the gospel. A man as he is cannot recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. This man couldn't. And he's one of the best men you could ever find. A, a Pharisee, a teacher, a very good man, and a humble man to boot. And yet he cannot, he cannot see him. 
The Apostle Paul puts that very plainly when he says that the princes of this world did not know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he, for they are spiritually discerned. But you notice the way in which our Lord puts it here to Nicodemus. It's in the sixth verse. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, that's his way of saying that this new birth is an utter and an absolute necessity. Nicodemus says, our Lord, in effect to him, you are putting your questions and expressing your point of view and your difficulty because you're speaking out of the flesh. And I'm talking about something that is spiritual. Now, here you see our Lord has this final and fundamental antithesis. There is the realm of the spirit, that's the kingdom of God, and there is this other realm of the flesh, and that is what we all are by nature. Now, what is the difference between these two things? Well, let me take you back for a moment to that fifth chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, which we read at the beginning, which puts the whole thing so plainly and so clearly. Listen to this. What is uh, this uh, being in the flesh, says someone? Our Lord says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Well, what is it? Well, here it is. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, worshipping things instead of God, yourself or your possessions, your children, your country, idolatry. Witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Now that's the realm, you see, of the flesh. That's the kind of thing flesh is. It leads to things like that. And he says, and such like. And under that particular uh, summing up, you can put things like this. The whole outlook upon life of men when he is left to himself and when he hasn't the enlightenment of the scripture and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. That's the flesh. Well, now then, what of the spirit? Well, here it is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And surely I have nothing to do but to read those two lists to you. To see how absolutely essential it is that we should undergo this birth of the Spirit. We all of us are born in the flesh, and we all know it. Take that list of the works of the flesh. We all know something about that, don't we? About the uncleanness and the lust and the passion and the jealousy and the envy and the hatred and the variations and variants and emulations and strifes. You see, the world is as it is tonight because of the flesh, these works of the flesh. Everything that is selfish and self-centered, always myself, 
And there is that other realm which is so absolutely different, love and joy and peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, temperance, all these other things. You see, it's a total contrast. And what our Lord is saying to Nicodemus, I can put in this way. You can't do this for yourself. You can't pass from one to the other. All your efforts are tarnished by the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you can't make yourself a religious man. Many a man has done that. This man, Nicodemus, was a very religious man, and was a very good man, and was a very moral man. But he wasn't in that kingdom. Or take a still more striking and notable example, that of the Apostle Paul. There was a man before his conversion who was an extremely good man and an extremely religious man, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew his scriptures. He knew his law. He knew his morality. He lived for it. And as he thought he was living for the glory of God, and he thought it was marvelous, he took great pride in his righteousness. And yet what he tells us is this, that when he really came to see this kingdom, he said, all my righteousness became as dung, refuse, vile and filthy and foul. Why? Well, it was all the result of the flesh. It was all self, self-produced. And it was self-conscious and it was proud of itself. And it gloried in itself. It was self-righteousness. And there's nothing more horrible. So you see, our Lord puts it like this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is always flesh. It may appear very wonderful to men. He put, our Lord put it you one day, you remember, to the Pharisees in these terms. He said, ye are they that justify yourselves before men, but God seeth the heart, and that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. Now this, I say, is something which is quite inevitable. It's the nature of the tree that determines the nature of the fruit. And if the tree is evil, the fruit will be evil. If the tree is bad, the fruit will be bad. You've got to determine the nature of the tree. The tree itself is the thing that needs to be changed. So our Lord, in another way, is just saying that, look here, Nicodemus, you can do as much as you like. It'll avail you nothing. It'll all belong to that realm of the flesh, and it won't be suitable in the realm of the spirit, for the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And the antithesis is a final one. Born of the flesh is flesh. Born of the spirit is spirit. You can't work your way in. Indeed, you can't think your way in, because your thinking is bound by the flesh. And all our thinking is bound by the flesh. And try as we will, we can't get away from it. It's the result of our own capacity and our own understanding. And it is as much of the flesh as are those works which are listed there in the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Galatians. Very well, I say. Because of this, the rebirth is absolutely essential. Nicodemus said, Our Lord, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. 
If only you saw the spiritual nature of this kingdom, you wouldn't marvel. The thing would be inevitable. It's flesh and spirit. Very well, let me put it positively. What is this new birth? What does he mean? Now, there are many, I believe, who are outside the kingdom of God and who are not Christians. Simply because they've never realized what this new birth really represents. Let me therefore put it to you simply and plainly, uh, under a number of headings. Let me just tell you some of the things that are true about this. Because as I keep on saying, there is nothing more important than this. I am not asking you primarily whether you have taken a decision for Christ or something like that according to the popular modern terminology. I'm asking this, are you born again? For there is no entry into the kingdom of God without being born again. This is our Lord's bit of evangelism. It isn't mine. These are not my ideas. What he says to Nicodemus is this, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? What is it? The first thing we've got to say about it is that it is God's action. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. It is the action of the Holy Spirit. Let me put it like this. Being born again is not something that you and I do. It is something that is done to us. This is the most glorious and the most wonderful thing about the Christian faith and about its message. It is not a call to men to do anything. It's an announcement and a proclamation of what God does. Look again at that great apostle saying it to the members of the church at Rome. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? His answer is because it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. He said, I'm coming to Rome, I'm looking forward to it, not that I may make a new moral appeal or a new ethical appeal, not because I'm going to ask men to do anything. I am the bearer of glad tidings. I am a herald of a message. I am here to tell you what God has done, the power of God into salvation. Man's power can never save. The law of the Old Testament had already proved that. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. God! Oh, that we might lay hold on this fact. Are you clear about this, my friend? Let me put some simple elementary questions. Are you clear about this first principle? That a man can never make himself a Christian. Do what you will, you'll never make yourself a Christian. God alone can make Christians. It is the work of the Spirit. It is to be born of the Spirit. It is, I say, a new creation. It's the bringing into being of something that wasn't there before. Before it was just flesh, now it becomes spirit. There is the first thing. It is God's action. Obviously, the second one follows. It is a supernatural action. 
It is a miraculous action. It is a marvelous action. This indeed, and let me put it quite frankly, is the miracle of God. I emphasize this particular aspect because I'm more and more convinced that what's wrong with the church today and therefore with the whole world that is looking at the church from the outside is that we have forgotten the miraculous element. We've put so much emphasis on men. We start with men and are always talking about men and we think man has got it in his power to do this and that. My dear friends, this is a miracle. A Christian is a new creation. God has worked a miracle in his soul. It's nothing less than that. Marvelous, miraculous, and supernatural. The next thing I want to emphasize about it is that it is a secret operation. You notice how our Lord puts that like this. He takes up an illustration. Nicodemus, he said, you're marveling at this and you're asking your questions, but you shouldn't be marveling. You know, it's like this. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. There it is. You suddenly hear the sound of the wind. You don't see it. You've never seen it. But uh, you see its effects. You see the trees being swayed by it. Or the clothes on the line waving in the breeze. You can't see the wind and you don't understand it. Something strange, something secret. There's a kind of mystery about it. And yet you see that something's happening. It's like that, he said. Mysterious. A secret operation in the soul. Not something that you can put on a table and analyze and dissect. This tremendous thing that our Lord is speaking about, which is called the rebirth or regeneration, is that operation of the Spirit of God down in the very vitals of our personality, where there resides what is called the soul. And the soul, of course, is a mystery to the natural men. The soul is not something anatomical. You can't find it by dissection, but it's there. And it is the biggest and the most important thing in men. And there it is, and there the Holy Spirit begins to do his work. You may look at a man and you see nothing happening to him, and yet this convulsion is taking place in the man's life. Later on he may weep or he may smile, he may sing, he may even dance in joy, but you didn't see what happened. You see that something has happened, but you don't see where. You couldn't see. It's a secret operation. It's a vital part of regeneration. Now, it's not a bit surprising, is it, that this is something that we cannot understand. Thou canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you are asking your questions. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? How can these things be? Nicodemus, you can't understand miracles. And this is, frankly, a miracle. 
friend talking to me casually just at tea time today, we were not talking about these things, told me that he'd seen a quotation from the late Lord Balfour. And he put it like this. He said, a religion or a faith that is small enough for a man to understand is not big enough to meet a man's needs. In other words, the needs of men are so great that any religion that I can understand will never solve them. I can understand your moral improvement, your social amelioration. There's no difficulty about understanding things like that. But man's needs are down in the depths, in this flesh of his, way down in the very roots of his personality. And what I need is something that's big enough to change me there. I can put a kind of curb upon myself. I can put a bearing rein upon my lusts and passions, but they're still there, and what a man needs is to be rid of them, to have them taken out of him. And that's the power that's needed. And you don't understand a power like that. This is, I say, beyond understanding, because it is miraculous and supernatural, and because it is marvelous. You know the whole of this Christian faith is beyond understanding. Take the facts about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Who can understand the incarnation? Who can understand the virgin birth? But you see, men in their folly are still trying to understand it. They say, I can't understand that. I see nothing like that in science. Of course you don't. It isn't science. It's God acting directly. It's miracle. Ah, oh, says someone, you know you stand there and you say that in Christ, that one person, there were two natures, the divine and the human, and yet they were quite unmixed. I can't understand. My dear friend, how could you possibly understand? I don't understand it. I'm not here to express my understanding. I'm announcing facts. You explain him in another way if you can. You explain him in any other terms or categories, and you'll find it impossible. He is a miracle. The incarnation is a miracle. The virgin birth is a miracle. His miracles are miracles. All these things are supernatural. You see, far from apologizing for that, I'm asserting it. And I thank God for it. If these miracles were not possible, there would be no hope for me. But this is miraculous. And therefore this whole doctrine of the rebirth is something that eludes our understanding. Do you mean to tell me, says someone, that though I have lived 50 years of a life of sin and of selfishness and of shame, that I can still become a new man? That sort of thing, he says, doesn't happen in this world. We form habits and we become slaves of them. And we can't liberate ourselves. Everything in this world depends upon a man's willpower and his effort and his ability. Are you standing there to tell me that though I'm lost and hopeless, I can become a new man? I am. It's a miracle. I don't stand here and claim that I understand it, but I know it's a fact. It's like the wind. 
Thou hearest the sound thereof, and can, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every man that is born of the Spirit. This is God's action. I don't understand. How can one understand it? And yet it is the fact. Well, what is it? The simplest way I can put it is to put it like this. This is what happens when a man is born again. God puts a new principle of life into the man's soul. And thus, he gives him what we may call a new governing disposition in his soul. What you mean by disposition, says someone? I mean this. Let me use a simple illustration which doesn't put it exactly but gives us some impression of what I mean. It doesn't mean that we are given new faculties, new powers, but it does mean that we are given something much more important. That the thing that governs a man's use of his faculties is entirely new. Now take two men, one of them Maybe a musician, if you like. Another, if you like, maybe an artist or a poet or a scientist. Now, from the standpoint of mere faculties, there may, may, may be no difference at all in the two men. They've got the same sort of abilities and so on, same amount of brain power. Yes, but the two men are different in this way, that their dispositions are different. The faculties that one man has is governed by this kind of musical disposition, the other by the scientific disposition. Now, it's something like that that happens to a man when he is born again. You see, what really matters about all of us is not the gifts that we have, our faculties and propensities. The really important thing about a man is his bent. Is this governing principle that determines how he uses everything else. And what happens in the new birth is that he is given this new disposition. And therefore all that he has, he uses in a different way. He's got the same powers, but he's using them in a different direction. Let me come back again to the classical example, the Apostle Paul himself. Look at that man before his conversion as Saul of Tarsus. What do you see? Well, you see a very able man, you see a very brilliant man, you see a great student, you see a man of great knowledge. Not only that, you see a man of great zeal, you see a man of great passion. You see a man with a tremendously active nature, and he can't keep still. If he believes in a thing, he's all out for it, and he puts it into practice. There he is, Saul of Tarsus. You notice his faculties, don't you? You can pick them out and underline them. But then he was born again on the road to Damascus. He becomes a Christian. He becomes the Apostle Paul. What about him now? Has he got any new faculty? I can't see a single new faculty. As I look at this man in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, as I read his epistles, I find precisely the same faculties. I see the same gigantic brain still. I see this brilliant intellect. I see this marvelous logician. I see this man who can marshal his facts and his arguments. I see also the zeal. 
I see the same passion. From being a violent, persecuting Pharisee, he didn't suddenly become a quiet preacher who just stood and smiled at people and told stories. Not at all. There's a violence in his argument. There's a passion in his preaching. The same faculty. And yet the whole man is different. Why? Well, he's got a new disposition. You see, this is the thing that matters. What's wrong with me and every man by nature is not that there's anything wrong in my faculties. It's the way I use them. There's nothing wrong in the faculties of men who are spending their weekend in working out football pools. There's nothing wrong in the faculties of a man who's giving himself to vice and to evil, who's organizing it and gloating in it. There's nothing wrong in the faculties. What's wrong? Ah, the desire that governs him. This disposition that controls his faculties. And blessed be the name of God. What happens in this new birth is that the man is given a new disposition. And it affects the whole of his personality. Because the disposition controls everything else. This man's mind is turned in a new direction. His heart is given a new direction. His will is given a new direction. And the result is, you see, that it leads to most definite results which the man himself knows and which everybody else is aware of. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every man that is born of the Spirit. I look at Saul of Tarsus, I look at the Apostle Paul, I say, what is it? I don't know. But I see the difference, I see the results. Something's happened, I've heard the sound. I can't analyze it, but there is the result. And that is so with every man who is born again. You can't be born again without it showing itself. The disposition is changed. What is it? Well, when a man is born again, he is conscious of the fact that he's got this new nature within him. Let me put it in my favorite way of putting it. The best test as to whether you are born again or not is simply this. Are you surprised at yourself? Do you feel that something's happened to you that you don't understand? Are you aware of a new man inside you? Something different. This new being, I yet not I, a new man with the old man. That's the test. And of course it leads to a new outlook. If any man be in Christ, says Paul, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He's got a new interest in spiritual things. He had none before. He never stopped to think about his soul nor about God. He lived for this world and himself. Now, he's aware that he's a soul that he's going on to meet God. And he's interested, he's concerned. The Bible becomes a new book. Prayer is a new interest in his life. He desires spiritual things.
He wants to know God and he wants to know Christ. He no longer loves the things he used to love. He begins to hate them. He no longer hates the light and loves the darkness. He hates the darkness and loves the light. He doesn't find the Christian life narrow any longer. He wants to be narrow. He wants to be pure. He wants to be clean. He wants to be like Christ. He wants to be like the saints. He loves the law of God. He wished he were keeping it fully. That's his desire. And he finds a new power within himself. Enabling him to do these things. He has been born of the Spirit. Well, there inadequately is what the New Testament means by being born again or being born of the Spirit. Without that, there is no entry into the kingdom of God. You can be religious without it. You can be a church member without it. You can be highly moral without it. But you cannot enter the kingdom of God without it. If you haven't this new life, this new principle, this new disposition governing your life, you're outside. Do you resent this teaching? My dear friend, we ought to rejoice at it. I'll tell you why we all ought to rejoice at this teaching. It's the only teaching that holds out hope for us. What if to be Christian depended upon a man's intellect? Well then, some people would have a great chance. Others would have none at all. What if it were a matter of understanding? Well, of course, the man who's been to the university and who studied philosophy would be in an altogether advantageous position. But what about the poor person who's never had an educational advantage? Perhaps because of the death of his father while he was yet young. He didn't even have a secondary education. What chance does he stand if it's man's understanding? Thank God it isn't that. Thank God it's God's work. And because it's God's work, he can do it to anybody. It doesn't matter how feeble, it doesn't matter how unintelligent we are, because he does it, he can do it to anybody. Or look at it from the moral angle. If to become Christian is something that results from your moral effort and striving and myself, What have you got to say to a man who may be on his deathbed tonight and who's lived a life of sin all his life? Have you anything to say to him? Of course you haven't. What of a person who's so steeped in sin that he's almost lost what little willpower he ever had and he's a helpless victim? He can do nothing. If to be a Christian means that he's got to haul himself out of it, He's doomed, he's damned, he's in hell before he dies. Oh, how we ought to thank God for this gospel, this message of the new birth, the miracle of God upon the soul, the new creation. 
For my dear friends, it's as easy for God to put the new principle into that vile, helpless sinner as it is to put it into anybody else. With God, nothing shall be impossible. There is no one outside the pale where God is concerned. And though a man may be as vile and as black and as hopeless as sin can ever make a human being, he has as much hope this evening as the most moral and the cleanest. It's God. It's God's gift. It's God's power. It is God putting something of his own life into the soul of a man. Have you got this life? Is this new principle in you? Forget, I say, all about decisions. Have you got this? If you haven't, you're outside the kingdom. I don't care what you are. I don't care who you are. If you haven't this new life, you're outside. And if you feel that that is your position, and if you feel you'd like to have this life, let me tell you, God has already started working in you. Because if you don't want it, if you dislike the doctrine, it means that God's done nothing to you. When the Spirit of God begins to work in a man, he's awakened to his need, and he wants it. If you want it, go to him and ask him for it. And I again am happy to assure you that if you really desire it and plead for it, he will give it you. So if you need it and long for it, ask him for it. Ask him to give you this new birth. And you will find that he will tell you in some shape or form that the very fact that you're awakened to your need is already proof that there's a new principle in you. For without the new principle, you'll never see your need and you'll never go to him. Therefore, I say, if there's any doubt or uncertainty, go to him, ask him, plead with him, ask him to do such a work that you will know that everybody else will know. And then humbly offer your praise and thanksgiving to him for this miracle of his grace, this new birth of the Spirit that takes you into the kingdom of God. Amen. The closing hymn is hymn number 378, 378. Lord, I was blind, I could not see. In thy marred visage any grace, 378.